are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Lord Jesus Christ, welcome back everybody to our study of the Evergatinas. We, as I've mentioned, are picking up with volume number two. And uh, we just began last week. And so we are on page number six, if you're following along in the text. Uh, with the paragraph that starts with the word since, since then he had such a loftiness of mind. And we've been talking for quite a while now, both in the Evergatinos and in the latter divine ascent about humility. And, uh, and we've been following the writers of the Philoclea for quite a while as they've discussed it. And they've been moving on here to discuss uh self-abasement you know humbling oneself before others uh and that in the process as we hear in the scriptures he who humbles himself will be exalted that uh one has to be comfortable as it were of letting go of ego of self-esteem of clinging to it and what god gives us is far greater than we can imagine perhaps not in this world as we see with some of them uh, especially in those who were holy fools, who uh, allowed themselves to be scorned by the world completely. Uh, but nonetheless, in Christ, one comes to know a kind of peace and, and joy in it. And so again, we are on page number six. Since then, he had such loftiness of mind. He concealed himself behind the most humble occupations, just as he wore an ugly mask, even though he was in the flower of his youth. He thought it dangerous to his goal of acquiring wisdom to display the comeliness of his body, for he knew that such a thing had been the cause of many serious falls, so as not to suffer something undesirable and to become the source of passions in the eyes of others. He employed, as a kind of ugly mask, the profession of a coal peddler. In this way, he trained his body in virtue at his workplace. And the beauty of his youth, he covered with soot, black dust from the coal. And whatever he earned from the pains of his labor, he allocated in such a way as to fulfill the commandments of the Lord. So if you remember, St. Gregory had been looking for a new priest for a town. And all the people had in their mind certain candidates that they would select if it was up to them. And uh, Gregory has the sense that there's someone else that he should choose. And it turns out to be this individual who, uh, again, nobody would suspect would be the one that would be chosen, that had whose heart was pure and humble. And it turns out that he was the coal peddler. 
uh, dressed in rags, covered as we hear with soot. And none the yet, nonetheless, uh, possessing great wisdom. I think, uh, if I remember correctly, he, he may have had great education as well. Uh, but these things he had covered up in order to pursue the life of humility. St. Gregory, having called Alexander out of the assembly of leaders, asked him to be informed by the man in detail regarding his life. The saint himself returned to the assembly and with impromptu instructions about the priesthood, described to those present the life of virtue. And he prolonged his instructions greatly in order to hold the assembly and to prevent the participants from leaving until his servants had carried out the saint's command and returned. Returning, they had Alexander with them, having bathed and cleaned the soot from him, and he was wearing the saint's vesture on his orders. So while they are off uh, obtaining Alexander and cleaning him up, uh, the great saint gives a, a little sermon to them about the qualities of one who would hold such a position. And uh, these are important readings for us today, I think, uh, for a lot of different reasons. We esteem so often the things of this world, and we look at externals, and uh, we judge who is better than the other very quickly. Uh, I saw a little interview today of, uh, who's the great actor? Um, Marlon Brando. And I think it was the old uh, newscaster Connie Chung uh, had said to him that, you know, he's often been referred to as the greatest of actors. Uh, and he took umbrage with that, you know, thinking that too often, especially in our culture, do we make that distinction of who is the best and fail to recognize uh, the qualities uh, of others and their uniqueness and the goodness of their identity as well as their particular skill. And so in his mind to make such distinctions was nonsense, especially in something such as, as acting. And, uh, but even more so, I think when we think about the life of, uh, of a Christian and the life of virtue, uh, so much is hidden that we do not see what is going on in the mind and the heart. And certainly external appearances can uh, be something that close, closes us and closes our minds to perceive the greater truth. And so this is what St. Gregory is trying to get the people to, to understand as they prepare Alexander. While all present turned their eyes toward Alexander and were astonished by what they saw, the teacher said to them, there is nothing unusual about being misled by one's eyes or reckoning his judgment sound solely by the sense of sight. For indeed, this sense is an inaccurate criterion in evaluating the truth of things, since it impedes us from fathoming the depth of the truth. In keeping with this, it was certainly dear to the enemy of piety, the devil, that the nomination process would be rendered ineffective by a lack of knowledge, so there might not be made manifest therein a person to abrogate his tyranny. So he's telling them that the devil actually plays upon this weakness 
that we have, that they were so ready to present these figures, to push somebody forward for nomination, despite the fact that their capacity to see the deeper truth about individuals is very limited. And uh, his bringing forward someone like uh, Alexander thwarts the evil one's plans. And, and uh, so it should be in the spiritual life that we have to be discriminating in our judgment. Having said this, the saint dedicated Alexander to God through the priesthood, sealing him and keeping with the manner dictated by the holy canons with divine grace. And as all beheld the new priest, the saint exhorted him to address the congregation, and he immediately demonstrated how true the judgment of St. Gregory had made about him. For the words which he spoke were, though replete with lofty thought, nonetheless devoid of flowery rhetoric. On this account, some arrogant young man who knew the Attic Greek dialect was present there, sarcastically criticized Alexander's unskilled homily, since it did not happen to be adorned with the rhetorical forms of the Attic dialect. But it is said that this young man was brought to his senses by the way of a certain divine vision. Namely, he saw a flock of doves shining with indescribable beauty and heard someone say to him, these doves belong to Alexander, whom you ridicule. So not only do we look for what is most attractive uh, in terms of externals, but uh, we also look uh, to ridicule then when someone is put forward, uh, rather than seeking to see that which is good in them, or to hear in their words that which God might be saying to us, uh, we can put on a critical spirit. And so uh, deafen ourselves to the truth of what they're saying or blind ourselves to, to what is good within them. And it's only by divine vision that we hear that this uh, last young man uh, is brought to his senses about Alexander. So pretty straightforward story. And I think some of the ones that follow here will be very similar to this, uh, but nonetheless, I think important to us because again, one of the things that's hard for us to let go of is our perception of how others perceive us, that it ought, we are often undone by it. When we feel that we are being scorned or when we're being mocked or insulted, it can really throw us out of ourselves and certainly turn our minds and our hearts away from God. Letter D. From the life of St. Markelos. The divine Markelos, who was from Aphemea, went to the monastery of the unsleeping ones. This monastery was thus called because in it, the worship of God by the monks was unceasing both day and night. Having become a brother, in a few years, he was clothed with the monastic schema by the abbot of the monastery, Alexander. Earlier on, a former acquaintance of Alexander, Iacobos, had been tonsured a monk at the same monastery. This Iacobos, having remained close to Alexander, was distinguished as the first among his disciples. But Marcellus, after just a few years had gone by, not only surpassed the other monks, but also Iacobos himself 
in ascetic labors and virtues. Thus he came to be greatly loved by Alexander. So, so often is the seeds of envy and jealousy. Uh, this is where they often begin to emerge through comparison of oneself with another. After some time, owing to the purity of his spiritual faculties, Marcellus foresaw the death of his master. Moreover, he saw in advance that election to the position of abbot would fall to him. And since he was afraid that perhaps, because he was still young, by becoming the superior of the elders, he might thereby be cut off from his beloved obedience, by which he was much gratified, he, from exceeding modesty, left the monastery without anyone knowing. Subsequently, the divine Alexander, having died shortly thereafter, the name of Marcellus was the cause of great sadness. I'm sorry, the name of Marcellus was everyone's, on everyone's lips. And the fact that he was not present among them was the cause of great sadness. So though he was among those nominated to become abbot, but could not be found, John, a venerable, pious, and wise man, was judged worthy of this rank. Uh, we've talked about this often in the past about loving the virtues, and it's always interesting to hear something such as obedience being loved and to be in the position of obedience and not willing to sacrifice that, that uh, this monk uh, sees what he had gained through living in it for uh a period of time and how quickly he advanced in and through it. And so was fearful when it becomes obvious to him that he may be elected abbot. And so he flees the monastery. As soon as Marcellus was informed about how things had turned out, he returned to the monastery as a co-worker of John, becoming his virtual right hand sharing in his excellent administration of the monastery. So he returns to the monastery and immediately sets himself again uh, to the task of, of obedience, and in fact, of serving this new abbot of the monastery. Once when Marcellus was absent on a trip, various accusations were made against him to John. The more experienced monks admired Marcellus because as we said, it so easily avoided becoming superior and abandoned the abbot's throne. The less diligent and slothful monks, however, who were ignorant of the worthiness of Marcellus's soul, said that he had forgotten glory precisely out of love of the glory, because as they maintained, he knew well that John would be the preferred candidate for abbot by the brotherhood and not wishing to appear lower than he, for this reason, went away from the monastery. So you see how skewed their vision becomes in their jealousy and their envy of this holy monk, that even his stepping away from glory, they twist into the desire for glory, that somehow he suspected that he was not going to be made abbot. And so rather, been, rather than be humbled, in the face of the community decides to flee. So it was actually uh, the desire to seem humble in the eyes of the community. They're accusing him of this. 
And, uh, and partly, you know, certainly this is due to their lack of diligence and slothfulness, that there is kind of negligence there, lack of watchfulness of heart that leads them easily to accuse a holy one such as Marcellus. When John heard this, both wishing to stress to the monks that they should not so easily accuse someone, and at the same time wishing to show them to what heights of humility Marcellus had risen, he told them, my children, you must judge others by their works. Without saying anything more, he decided that when Marcellus returned, he would assign him to the most menial task, that is, to look after the jackass. Indeed, then, as soon as he returned, in front of everyone, the abbot assigned Marcellus to what was considered the, the demeaning task of caring for the jackass. But Marcellus clearly made manifest his exceeding modesty, for he not only accepted the abbot's command joyfully, but appeared even more elevated and happy. So this is a person who loves, <laughs> loves obedience and, uh, and sees the, the value of, of humility, that the humble task is not something that diminishes them. The one who's able to take that up joyfully knows that he receives something far greater from the Lord. You know, to take up some, something that is lowly in the service of others is to experience an outpouring of God's grace. And so while they might seem to have nothing within the world and maybe the ugliest job in the monastery, uh, the peace within the mind and the heart is great. Uh, we've so often talked about humility as being unique uh, among the virtues, that in some ways it contains all of them, all the virtues, but it also unites one to Christ, that one begins to experience this deep union and communion with him that it is part of the very nature of the divine uh, to be self-emptying. Uh, this is what is revealed to us in, from the incarnation on. And so when a person empties himself of glory in imitation of Christ, uh, he becomes so configured to Christ that he begins to participate in the peace and the joy of, of the kingdom. So this was not just... Uh, a kind of earthly joy that was being made manifest in him, part of his character, good nature. This is a part of his participation in the joy of the kingdom. So if we could see such things, it would probably matter much less to us what it is that we are given to do on a given day, uh, so long as we are seeking to take it up for love of Christ, and then again in the spirit of obedience. With such joy, it was said, did he carry out his service, considering it a privilege that he asked for written certification that he would never be taken from it. And this joy he expressed not only in words, but in practice, nor did he devote just a little time to this obedience. On the contrary, he seemed to be ever more zealous in his work. So much did he prolong his obedience that the other monks, asking his forgiveness as well, begged him for some time to abandon this humble service. For it was quite unseemly for such a man, who was worthy of shepherding the rational flock, and in that role greatly to help them, to be engaged in such a mean obedience, 
even when the lowliest monk could have fulfilled, even the lowliest monk could have fulfilled. So, you know, uh, they they are cleansed. Their hearts are cleansed by his virtue. That they come to see it in the perfection in which it is carried out. And uh, eventually they seek out his forgiveness and even begin to beg him to leave off of his diligence uh, that uh, in some ways it even seemed demeaning to them at this point for a man who's so holy and who really could be guiding the community to be dedicating himself to such a work. And again, so we're seeing something th throughout uh, the Avrakatinos that manifests itself over and over again, the power of virtue, lived virtue, to transform the hearts of others. And uh, again, we live in a culture that is so often focused upon words of arguing, uh, you know, of pulling things apart and dissecting them in order to convince. Uh, so, so often, uh, within the Avrakatinas, we are given these examples of perfect virtue speaking to the heart in the most powerful way, that it reaches into the depths of a person's religiosity and brings about conversion and repentance. Very few homilies do that. Perfect virtue does it by the loads. Any comment on this little story or on anything that we've talked about so far? Okay. From the Gerontikon. It is said of Abba Pambo that for three years he persistently implored God saying, do not bring me honor on earth. But so greatly did God glorify him that no one could look on his face on account of the glory thereupon, for it was exceedingly radiant. Abba Sissos and Abba Silwan attained the same gift of grace as Abba Pimbo. So we see here how deeply rooted they were in the scriptures. He who humbles himself will be exalted. That to let go of that which is lesser is to receive that which is greater. And so to let go of our hold upon earthly glory is to have something far greater bestowed upon us. And so as much as he prayed for any worldly glory to be taken away from him, the more the glory of God began to shine through him to the point that his countenance began to change. And uh, again, it's a hard thing for us to imagine praying for such a thing that, uh, that uh, do not bring me any honor on earth. It's probably not the first thing that comes to our mind in the morning to pray for. And yet we hear him praying for it every day for years. And uh, in order that he might be free. And I think it's because, again, in the desert, they had this profound sense of how powerful the ego can be. And that even, you know, freed so much from earthly converse and from the things that those in the world typically experience, they still 
had this struggle with pride, the desire to cling uh, to self-esteem, even on a religious level, uh, and even simply internally, to have a sense of themselves as, as being virtuous. And so to pray for ways that they would be shown dishonor, uh, they saw as a way of being freed from it. Uh, Rod mentions here the litany of humility, which is extraordinary. If you ever had the opportunity to pray it, uh, it would be a good one to pray daily, uh, because basically it would be saying praying what uh, Abba Hambo prayed here. Uh, it's extraordinary. So you could look it up online. Uh, I forget the author uh, author's name of it again. It would come. It might come to me a little bit later. Uh, if anybody knows it, that you could put it in the notes. But it's probably the hardest litany to pray uh, for for the things. Yeah, Cardinal uh, Mary Duval. That's right. Thank you. Number two, Saint John the Short tells us that a certain spiritual elder closed himself in his cell and was famous throughout the city, enjoying great praise. Now, he was once informed that a great saint was approaching death. Go to him and greet him, he was told, before he reposes. However, he immediately thought, if I leave my cell during the daytime, people will run behind me, giving me all kinds of praise. But I am ill at ease with that. So let me set off late when it is dark so that no one will notice me. So it's a curious thing, and I think we're given a little insight here into the, the struggle of the Desert Fathers, that what began as this solitary movement into the desert and the embrace of its rigors in order to confront that which lies within the heart and to root out the, the, the passions, uh, often they would be followed uh, out into the desert uh, uh, because of their reputation for holiness by people who were seeking counsel in one form or another. And uh, here we see, see him mention this. If I go out during the daytime, people are going to immediately run after me. So what I'll do is I'll, I'll go out at night instead. And so we are told he went out of his cell late at night, wishing to avoid people. But behold what happened. Two angels were sent by God to escort him by lamplight so that he might walk surely. Seeing this glorious thing, all those in the city ran after him. Thus, as much as he wished to avoid glory, all the more was he glorified in keeping with the saying of Holy Scripture, whoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall abase himself shall be exalted. So, one begins having cast off worldly glories and the desire for it. one begins to share in the in the glory of god so it's not i don't even think we want to understand it as uh simply their virtue being perfected so much as it is their participation again in the life of god in the glory of god that the glory of God manifest is his humbling of himself in the incarnation and on the cross. And so those who share in this in a radical way, 
by setting aside earthly glory, begin then to share in his glory. And again, often is made manifest in the way that it is described, described here for us in the text. Uh, Rebecca writes, when St. John of the Cross was in the final weeks of his life, he had to go from his hermitage to a monastery for them to take care of him. He chose to go to Beda rather than Beza, Beza, because he was known in Beza and he didn't want the attention his holiness would attract there. Right Again, east and west, I think we see this trial uh, of those who then do become known for a kind of sanctity. And they knew the dangers of it as well. It's not as though they simply didn't want to be bothered. I think they, they knew that this could be a source of temptation for them, that people are very quick uh, to become enamored and infatuated with such things and to draw attention to them. And certainly one like John of the Cross or uh, the monk mentioned here in this story, it would be the last thing that they would want is to draw attention to themselves rather than to direct people to Christ. Number three, Abba Isaac relates the following. When I was younger, I stayed with Abba Kronios, who never asked me to do any work, even though he was old and had palsy. He would get up and give water from a pitcher both to me and others. As well, I stayed with Abba Theodore, neither did he ask me to do anything. He would set the dinner table himself and say to me, brother, if you like, come to eat. I would say to him, Abba, I moved in with you to be useful. Why do you not then let me do something? But the elder always remained silent. I went to the elders and told them this. Going to him, they said, Abba Theodore, this brother came to stay with your holiness in order to be useful. Why do you tell not tell him to do something too? The elder replied to them, am I perhaps the superior of some Cenobitic monastery so that I can give him orders? It is not mine in the least to tell him anything. If he likes, let him do what he sees me doing. From that time, I managed to do whatever the elder did, but he and all that he performed did so silently. And this taught me to do my work in silence. So, you know, sometimes we require an engraved invitation <laughs> to serve uh, others. Tell me what to do. And there can be, isn't that funny? There can be a little bit of satisfaction that is found in that, that I'm responding, I'm making myself useful to others. And here, this being sounding more like it was a skeet or just a group of monks gathered together, they did what was necessary. And they did it from the heart without thinking about it and without uh, waiting to be asked. And uh, this is where great virtues to be found, found, that one is able to take up that work silently without having to be recognized or acknowledged for it. And, uh, you know, often I think when somebody's in formation, that is what you look for in them. 
that there are certain duties that individuals have typically when they enter into monastery, for example, or a religious community. And uh, not only though, would you look for them to fulfill those things well, and without having to be constantly asked to do them, but you would also look for a love for the community or a love for the monastery that when they see something that needs to be done, they do it and without having to be asked to do so, that uh, they begin not to live for themselves, but for, for others. And uh, sometimes we have to be shown this or taught this like this young monk that uh, you know it's it's not just simply proving ourselves to be useful in the obvious ways. It's showing that we love and desire to give ourselves in love. Uh, this is why so often again their work was called their obedience uh, because it in many ways conformed themselves to the obedience of Christ, that that was his food to do the will of his heavenly Father. And so, to take up those things joyfully, but even more so to take them up without being asked is to show that one does them out of love. So in the East, I'm finding they don't like the O word, obligation. <laughs> you know, that uh, when it comes to fasting or uh, say the prayers that you are to say throughout the course of the day. Uh, like in the West, when you are ordained to the priesthood or the diaconate, you are required to say the entire divine office every single day. And uh, there are no such laws or obligations or can be dependent upon the, uh, the bishop or archbishop of the territory. But there's a kind of avoidance of this, that uh, there's the expectations, certainly that by the nature of one's life, one is going to pray. Uh, but uh, there's a kind of a avoidance of making that an obligation that is simply slavishly fulfilled. In the same sense with days of obligation. Now, I think that has its part because people often lose, that has its place because people often lose sight of the importance of celebrating feast days and things like that. Uh, but often uh, it does not bring the response that we hope, you know, the reminder, this is a holy day of obligation. It doesn't seem right. You know, if we are celebrating a central feast of our salvation, uh, then why would we call it uh, an obligation, something that one would be compelled to go to. The language should be one of, again, of desire. And we find that even in the way they approach things such as this work, that it really should be the desire of one's heart to love and give oneself in love. And so if I have to tell this guy, Theodore, what to do, you know, I'm not his boss. I'm not, I'm not his superior. If he wants to live among us, let him you know, live by example and step right in and start doing things. Number four, Abba Peter said the following, a number of people seeing Abba Macarius 
so gentle before the other brothers and humbling himself before everyone, asked him, why do you do this to yourself, Abba? He replied, for 12 years I enslaved myself to Christ so that he would give me this gift. And now you advise me to give it up. So, again, you know, being confronted with those who question, even those who are religious, who question the value of humbling oneself before the brothers, still clinging to dignity, earthly dignity, even if it's clinging to the dignity in another. Abba Marcarius, you're so holy. Why are you humbling yourself before all the brothers? Uh, because, you know, I think if we don't want to be humble, we aren't going to want others to be humble in this way or setting this example. That's why these kinds of questions are asked, because they're a reflection of what's within our, within our own hearts. You know, come on, Abba Macarius, quit, you know, playing this part of the humble one. Otherwise, we're all going to have, have to do it, basically. Suzanne writes, Roman discipline, order, and common sense. The church understands both the power of the official worship of the church and the feebleness of human nature. That's right. Uh, and I, there is a place for that. I, I understand it. And, uh, but when there is, I think, a movement away from everything that we are, are looking at in the writings of the fathers, which is the formation of the mind and the heart, and where there is a lack of desire or a sense of the love of Christ and the desire to reciprocate that love, then obligation is simply heard by the mind and the heart as something legal. You know, that one is fulfilling a duty, uh, but, but not for the sake of love, but for the satisfaction of having done it. And uh, it can turn into a kind of minimalist approach to the spiritual life that leads to mediocrity in our loving. And so you're right, there is this uh, Roman sense of discipline that is very strong and it can also be very powerful in helping people bring a kind of order to their life. Uh, but it also can be very suffocating and not produce the fruits, especially if it's not, uh, if it's not uh, presented by example. And this is what so comes forth so powerfully in the writings of the fathers, that they teach by example more than by, by words and by laying down, laying down the laws. And, uh, and so, you know, we want to be striving, I think, for what we see put forward here, even while we do acknowledge the feebleness of our nature. Good point, though. Okay, number five. Abba Poyman said that if one humbles himself, he will find rest in any place that he settles. So, you know, changing the externals does not change what is going on within the human heart. And so if we are humble, we are going to see ourselves under the providence of God. 
and we are going to receive what it is that he sets before us. And if you remember, the fathers uh, in the first volume presented us with a rather long section on this about not leaving that external setting, except where there is malice or envy in such a way that it prevents the pursuit of the of the life of holiness. Uh, but Abba Poyman's here uh, uh, statement here is well taken that we take ourselves wherever we go. And so if there's hum humility within the heart, uh, wherever we might find ourselves, there should be a kind of joyfulness and freedom. And um, we often you know, spend a great deal of our time fretting about our circumstances and or wishing that they were different. Imagining what things could be for ourselves if you know, our perception of things or our way of desiring things or desiring how things would be done would be uh, uh, come to fruition. And, uh, and in that we lose missing, we lose living in the moment. And again, that's the only place that we can truly live. Number six, about Abba Peter and Abba Epimachus, the following is said, they were co-strugglers at Raithu. Uh, Raithu was a monastery near uh, Mount Sinai that uh, uh, John Climacus wrote the, the Ladder of Divine Ascent for that monastery. The abbot had requested that he write to them about the spiritual life. And so it's interesting to find uh, these little connections here as we go through the Evergetinas, uh, that here uh, there was also great fruit uh, to the place that John wrote. It so happens that once while they were eating in the church, they were pressured to sit at the elders' table. After much effort, only Abba Peter went. When they rose to leave, Abba Epimachus asked Abba Peter, how could you dare to go to the table of the elders? Abba Peter answered him, had I sat with you since I'm older, the brothers would have turned to me to bless first, thus making me the greatest among all of you. But when I went to be with the fathers, this made me the youngest of all, and thus humbler in my thoughts. So, you know, better to take the, the last seat than the first. And so while it was a difficult decision to make, you know, to dare sit at the table of the elders, he realized that in doing so, he would be placing himself in the lowest place. Number seven, Peter, who was a presbyter in the Dion Monastery, when he happened to be praying with someone, even if he, was, if he was coerced on account of his priesthood to stand in front of that person, when he went for confession, as we read in the life of Abba Anthony, he stood behind everyone. And this he did without the slightest chagrin. So not holding on to even you know, priestly dignity of again, seeking to take the lower place, the lesser place and not to put oneself forward as if one's status in and of itself uh, makes one greater. Number eight, an elder 
said, either avoid men by fleeing them or dupe the world by making yourself appear stupid the majority of the time. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, again, they don't make it easy. So, you're, you know, in order to avoid uh, pride, flee the world, you know, become a monk and live in solitude or make yourself appear stupid to everyone. Uh, it's not much of a choice, uh, I think. And, uh, but there is a kind of humor uh, in it as well that, you know, that we wouldn't be doing either thing with the desire of exalting ourselves uh, or having a sense that it does. You know, for a person who enters into a monastery, there might be a little sense when people hear about it that, oh, it's a wonderful thing. But when you enter into the monastery, you're quickly forgotten. You know, you're living out in the woods in some monastery, and those who made a big deal about your taking the vows, and, you know, it's not long before you're out of mind, and and their people get busy with uh, their own life. And that's true. That's generally true. And, uh, and so to cling to uh, something such as a dignity is foolish. And certainly five minutes after we're in the grave, you know, most everything we've done, people forget. And we all the things that we uh, worried about or fretted about. And uh, and so, you know, why be why be concerned about it? From Abba Cassim, so John Cassim. There once lived a young man of worldly importance, wealthy, and the son of illustrious parents. Moreover, he was rather learned. Now, he abandoned his father in all of his worldly glory and dedicated himself to the monastic life in order that his faith and his humility might be put to the test. His elder directed him one day to get up and load 10 baskets on his shoulders and set off to sell them in the city from which he hailed, and not to sell them all at once, but one by one. He indeed fulfilled this command with all patience and humility. That is, he took the baskets on his shoulders, sold them one by one, paying no regard to the lowly nature of the affair, his illustrious background, or the insults that his selling baskets might have invited. For he took care continuously to show himself an imitator of the humility of Christ. This almost sounds like a story from the life of St. Philip Neri, you know, of making someone uh, like go to the marketplace and buy a pint of wine and carry it through the city in a big flask. Uh, similarly, this elder makes him go to the market, but reduces him to selling one basket at a time, you know, not, not trying to go through them quickly, sell them all in a bunch, but allow himself to sit there all day in this humble task, uh, knowing that perhaps somebody there is going to recognize him of this once wealthy and well-educated man sitting there selling handmade baskets made of palm branches uh, in order to humble him. 
And we met another father, Abba Penufrius, a man adorned with all the virtues, who was a priest and elder of a large Cenobitic monastery in Egypt near the city of Penefo. Now he, seeing that everyone was praising him for his virtuous life, for his great age, and for the position that he held as abbot, and seeing that he could not carry out the ascetic labors of humility, to which he had from the very beginning given himself over, secretly fled from his monastery because of his love of obedience. He settled as a solitary anchorite in the distant reaches of the Thebaid. And having shed his monastic schema and wearing the clothing of a layman, eventually went to the Tavanesi monastery. He thought that he would thus pay no attention, that they would thus pay no attention to who he was, both because of the great number of monks there and because this Tavanesi monastery was very far from the place where his own monastery was located. So if you remember, the Tavanesi monasteries were those founded by out about Pacomius, who was the first to write uh, roles for those who lived in these larger communities. And so this is what he does, you know, having lived as this anchorite and gained uh, great esteem of others, goes to join a rather large, these communities, if you remember, some of the, the women's religious communities that were founded had 400 members in them. And so he becomes, goes to become an anonymous member if you will, of one of these large monasteries that it is at quite a distance. Having employed, I'm sorry, having implored for a number of days to be received, the elder finally accepted him on account of his patience and persistence. Since he was old and could not be otherwise employed, he was assigned to the cultivation of the garden along with another monk whose disciple he became. Thus he put into practice his beloved humility and obedience. His work was not just that of the garden, but any other work which seemed difficult to the others he eagerly undertook. So not initially being recognized, he's given uh, what seems appropriate for his age. And so, you know, despite his background, but despite his knowledge, he becomes the gardener basically and tends to the garden. He spent three years in this manner without being noticed by anyone. In the meantime, his disciples were seeking after him throughout Egypt. Finally, after three years, a certain brother who was visiting there recognized him. When this brother first saw him, he thought he knew him from the characteristics of his face. But since he was not without doubt, he wanted to hear his voice. For he was not certain solely from the sight of his face, since he was looking on a man who had aged, who was holding a grub axe, cultivating the ground, carrying a sack of manure on his shoulder, and spreading it over the roots of the vegetables, veg I'm sorry, of the vegetable plants. But when, after carefully listening to his voice, he was able to determine who it was, he immediately fell at the feet of his elder to the great consternation of those present, for such gestures were being made to a man who for them was still a neophyte, who was only a short time beforehand, uh, uh, I'm sorry, a short time beforehand had abandoned the world and whom they considered the lowest. 
They were even more amazed, however, when they learned his name as well, which they had in the past heard mentioned with great admiration. Thus they asked forgiveness because without knowing who he was, they had placed him among the last. After great entreaty, he was taken back to his monastery against his desire and with lamentation, as the brothers would not allow him to succeed at his beloved obedience and humility. So these guys always pursuing these poor uh, men who want to lead the hidden life, uh, to, as it were, to drag them back. And I think part of it, though, is because they were seen as having such value to a monastery that elders, someone who had experiential knowledge, was highly, they were highly valued. And so in, on some level, it explains why they do it. But I always feel bad for them when they are found out and dragged back. After remaining a short time at his monastery, he was overtaken once more by his desire for humility and obedience. Thus, looking to find the right opportunity, he left during the night, not this time to the Thebaid, but to an unknown country. And so it was that having boarded a ship, he arrived in Palestine, hoping that he could remain there unknown until the end of his life. He ended up at the monastery, which is near the cave where our master Christ was born from the Virgin. And there he was received by the abbot. During that time, I was also there. But even there, the elder could not remain unknown for much time. In keeping with the voice of Christ our master, a city which is set on a hill cannot be hid. So he goes all the way to Bethlehem. He goes to a different country. And still, uh, again, there's something about him that manifests his true virtue. And again, I think we're draw drawn back into what we've talked about here previously, that one begins to participate in the glory of the kingdom. It's not simply their high virtue, but the, the life of Christ within them that people begin to see with such great clarity. Indeed, brothers coming from various parts of Egypt on pilgrimage to the Holy Land recognized him and after many requests, entreaties and tears, persuaded him to follow them back to his monastery. I personally stayed for a short time with this holy man in Egypt and I will relate those things which I heard when I was advising a brother who in my presence was being accepted as a novice in the monastery so that you might know the man well and what knowledge he was made worthy by God and the extent to which he knew by experience the ideal of the ascetic life. So the author here makes a note that Cassian is referring here to his own conferences uh, that he would share uh, with those who are reading this, that uh, it's one of the characters that uh, Cassian describes in the conferences that are, that are so beautiful. But what is emphasized here is, again, uh, new by experience the ideal of the ascetic life. It's not reading from books that, in other words, that we are going to gain an understanding of what is being talked about here this night. It's through imitation. 
It's through the experience of allowing ourselves to be led by Christ, uh, maybe along a path that we do not want to go, and allowing him to show us the meaning of the virtue and the value of it. And again, that's always something that's important to keep in mind. In, in the East, is emphasized over and over again, the experiential knowledge that is what leads us to understand the things of God. You know, it's not the mere study of the book, it's purity of heart. It's the cultivation of the virtues, overcoming the passions that allows us to understand the things of the kingdom. So any final thoughts on any anything that we've read here this evening? It's a lot. So we're, again, this is solid food that we're being led deeper and deeper into the nature of humility and further and further away from, I think, this sense of it, uh, just thinking poorly of ourselves, that what this uh, abasing of ourselves or even acknowledging of our poverty is meant to do is to free us from the ego in order that uh, Christ might live within us. Again, remembering Paul's thought, is no longer I who live I, but Christ who lives within me. So the opposite of, of vice is not virtue. Uh, it's something that we obtain and grasp on our own. is Christ living within us. And that, that's why we hear these stories of the glory of Christ shining forth from them that what what begins to form within them is his virtue uh strengthened by the grace of god and uh you know so you know everything that we do as christian men and women is by grace again asceticism is not this kind of raw endurance but uh, giving ourselves over more and more fully to christ Okay, so that brings us to, believe it or not, 8.30 uh, this evening. So we'll, we'll pick up there next week. And for all those you can make it, Saturday will be, or I'm sorry, Wednesday will be uh, the Ladder of Divine Ascent once again. Okay. So thank you all and have a wonderful night. And, uh, and thank you for your comments. And why don't we close as always with the Our Father. In the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace.